Well, we've come to the end of a series in which we're trying to confront one of the most difficult questions that uh, confronts those who have any spiritual worldview, the question of uh, pain and suffering. But actually, when you think about it, there are probably three different types of questions we might want to ask when confronted with pain. One is a question about the past, the question, why did God let any particular event occur? Then there's a question about the future. What, if anything, does God intend to do about it? And then I guess there's the question of the present. Where is God in my pain? There's another way of putting this. You could say that when confronted with pain, we want to ask the question about explanation, the question about possible restoration, and the question of consolation. Where is God uh, right now? Now, I think I've made clear enough that it's my belief the Bible is a little bit shy on explanation. It's not that it doesn't say anything about the explanation, but it is a little shy in giving a complete explanation of why any particular event occurs in your life. And it's important to understand, it's not that the Bible writers had no options available. In fact, in the ancient world, there were some very tidy options for explaining the pain of the world. For instance, many Babylonians and Egyptians and some Greeks and Romans saw suffering as divine payback. The gods see you act in a certain way and they punish you. The Bible refuses to go down that path, though it's a comprehensive explanation. Others, I'm thinking of the Epicureans, uh, took the path of seeing everything as natural. The Epicureans were almost atheists. They were practical atheists in the ancient world. Their view was if the gods exist, they're not the least bit interested in acting in the human uh, affairs. And so their view is that everything that happens to you is just natural, natural. And you can see that this is a rather modern perspective uh, to this day. Another interesting perspective available to the biblical writers that they also rejected was to see all the events in your your life as, as kind of universal balance. It's almost like karma coming out of the Eastern tradition. But we know that from Plato through to the Stoics through to the founder of the Neoplatonic school, Plotinus, they viewed everything that happens in your life as divinely balanced. Let me quote Plotinus, one of the most important philosophers of the ancient period, explaining the problem of pain. He writes in his book on providence, The rational principle of the universe looks not only at the present but also at the future, so as to determine men's worth making slaves out of those who were masters before and if they sorry if they were bad masters and if men have used wealth badly making them poor and causing those who have killed unjustly to be killed in their turn unjustly there is certainly no accident in a man's becoming a slave nor is he taken prisoner of war by chance nor is outrage done to his body without due cause we must conclude that the universal order is forever something of this kind. Here is a rational explanation of the problem of pain, but the Bible rejects this 
explanation too. The Bible is shy about explanation, at least any of these tidy explanations, which is not to say the Bible says nothing at all to explain the dilemmas of the world. Uh, The Bible does say something on the problem of human evil. The Bible, at a broad sense, says that Adam, the word for humanity in Hebrew, humanity is called to obey God, but is capable of refusing God. And that God considers this a greater good than having uh, created beings without the capacity to refuse. On the problem of natural suffering, the Bible has a general thing to say. It says that the painful disorder of this creation is somehow linked, as we saw last week, to the human rejection of the Creator, a kind of echo of the human estrangement from God. So the Bible does have some things to say, but beyond these two broad principles that we looked at last week, the Bible, as I say, is a little bit shy on explanation. And I've got to be honest with you and say, I don't know why this is. I don't know why. Uh, Could it be that the reasons any particular event happens in your life are so many and varied that it would just be impossible to list them in Scripture? Is it because the reasoning of God is beyond our imagining, that His purposes in allowing suffering to continue are just so beyond us, it couldn't be put in print? You know, the older I get, the more open I am to the proposition that God's reasoning powers must be at least as high above our reasoning powers as ours are above snails. Just pause and reflect on that for a second. If there's a God, how much higher are his reasoning powers than yours, do you think? I think a lot of modern people think, you know, because we've invented the iPad, Um, you know, God's reasoning powers must be, you know, yeah, sure, a little bit higher than ours. But I, really, if there's a God responsible for the unfolding history of the universe, is it not the most rational proposition to believe that his reasoning powers must be at least as high above ours as ours are above insects or whatever? This is not to run away into mystery, It's not even to be humble, actually. I just think it's perfectly rational. So I'm open to there being reasons known to God in his wisdom that he is able to achieve. But whatever the Bible lacks by way of comprehensive explanation for any particular suffering, it more than makes up for in its promise of restoration and its promise of consolation. Maybe the Bible isn't complete on explanation, but what it offers in its promise of restoration and consolation is beautiful. It seems to me then that the Bible does have comprehensive answers to the two more important questions of suffering. Let's think about this. Imagine knowing the explanation for a certain tragic event in your life but not knowing whether God intends to do anything about it to restore the world. 
Imagine having explanation but no restoration. Or imagine having the explanation for a particular event in your life, but not having any consolation, not knowing if God cares for you right now in the present, whether he is with you in your pain. When people go through suffering, actually, explanation is the least helpful. What they long for is hope and comfort, restoration and consolation. And here as we saw last week in terms of restoration, the Bible does excel. Last week we saw that the Bible promises in response to human evil, God has set a day of judgment, a day of justice, when he will right the wrongs of the moral sphere. Every time you you see an act of evil reported on the news, remind yourself God has an account. He will right the wrongs. The Bible is very clear on this. The Bible also says that there's a day of restoration, not just justice, but restoration for the physical disorder of this universe. God will make everything right. The Bible says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. All pain and sorrow are gone. Unless we dismiss this as, you know, kind of just pie in the sky when you die and wishful thinking, Christians have always believed that God raised the crucified Jesus to life and that this is the proof and pledge in history of what God intends to do at the end of history. Think of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Is this not the proof and pledge that God will vindicate those unjustly treated? That God will breathe life where there is death? We cling to the death and resurrection because of what it says about the future, about God's intentions. And so with Dostoevsky, whom I quoted last week, the great Russian intellectual, like a babe, I trust that the wounds will heal, the scars will vanish, that in the end, in the universal finale, something so magnificent will take place that it will satisfy every human heart. Did I tell you last week that when he was found in his St. Petersburg flat, died, he had died. He was found with a New Testament on his lap. I love to think that this immense intellect died with a clear sense of the hope of restoration that the Bible teaches. But I also like to hope, I don't know for sure, but I like to hope that he died drawing something of the present consolation the New Testament speaks about. And it's this consolation that I want to focus on in this third talk. The remaining minutes of our series. I want to focus on what does God do in the present? Where is he to be found in our present pain? And I want to unpack what the Bible says of God's present consolation by comparing the biblical perspective one more time with the Buddhist path to consolation. And my goal here is not at all to criticize the Buddhist path, but to highlight for you the radically different options available to us as we confront our pain. I want to tell you one of the most poignant stories of Buddhist suffering and faith that I've heard of. Kobayashi Issa is one of the best-loved literary masters in Japanese history the author of 20,000 haiku poems. 
Now, I know haiku poems, they're just little things, right? But they're blooming hard to write. I remember when the kids came home from school and they had to write haiku in English, and you had to get all the syllables correct and, and so on. It's incredibly difficult. 20,000 of them. He is one of the best-loved literary masters in Japanese history. He was also a devout Buddhist. And like the founder of Buddhism before him, Kabayashi had experienced dramatic pain in his life. This man uh, had lost his mum when he was a child. Then he lost four daughters. And then he lost his wife. And there is a poem he wrote after the loss of one of his daughters that I want to quote in a moment. But you need to understand the dilemma as a faithful Buddhist he faced. Because Buddhism, as you know, teaches that the way to remove all suffering is to give up all attachments. All attachments to relationships, all attachments to comfort, all attachments. If you can remove your attachments, suffering evaporates like dew in the morning. It is, in fact, the third noble truth of Buddhism. There are only four noble truths, and here is the third of the great noble truths. The Buddha himself said, the noble truth of the cessation or ending of suffering is this. It is the very cessation of that very desire, giving it up, relinquishing it, liberating oneself from it, and detaching oneself from it. And the logic is relentless, as I pointed out in a previous week. If you can give up your attachments to your loved ones, when you lose them, you will not suffer. And Buddhists take this so seriously. There's a very important Buddhist text called the Parinibbana of the Buddha. It's the, the death of the Buddha. And in it, the, it, it tells the scene of how the Buddha, surrounded by his disciples, breathed his last breath. And the disciples, one by one, start to weep at the loss of the Buddha. And then one of them pipes up and says, didn't the Buddha say to be detached? We shouldn't even be detached to our master. And the others go, you're right, the third noble truth. And they wipe the tears from their eyes and go back into a meditative state of equilibrium, detached even from the Buddha. So imagine Kabayashi Issa's dilemma. As he thinks about the loss of his four children and his wife, he penned these anguished words, which I'm sure sound much better in Japanese, but the English gives the sense. This world of dew is only a world of dew. And yet, and yet. When I first read these words, my heart so went out to him as he strained to take hold of Buddhist consolation, as he tried to detach from the world as if it were just due. Yet the cry of his heart was, and yet, and yet. The biblical approach to suffering is radically different, radically different. I said in the first talk of this series, the God of the Bible invites you to come with all of your pain and anguish, not in detachment, 
but in full attachment to your grief and doubt and cry out to him the words of Psalm 22 from the Old Testament, which we've focused on again and again in this series. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words enshrine forever both the reality of your pain and your right to go to God with all of your pain and anguish and ask him why. I don't mean to be cheeky when I say this, but Christians would make awful Buddhists. And I want to go further this morning and say, the God revealed in Scripture would make a terrible Buddhist. Because detachment from sorrow is the last thing you could possibly imagine about the biblical God. And here we arrive at what I think is the most striking element of the Bible's teaching about pain. Here we arrive at the heart of where consolation is to be found. It is the unique and bizarre idea that God himself knows pain. Think of the Bible's narrative for a second. In the opening act of the Old Testament, he creates human beings for independent relationship with himself. They turn the independence into autonomy and reject him. And so early on in the Old Testament, we read those quite chilling words of Genesis 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Wind forward to the close of the Old Testament, and we learn that God has sent prophet after prophet begging humanity to come back. And people reject the prophets. And so in one of the later Old Testament books, Hosea, God describes himself as a jilted lover. In fact, worse, he describes himself as the jilted lover of a prostitute. Hosea chapter 2. Israel decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. God describing himself as a wounded lover. This is the biblical God. He is not detached. And of course, in the New Testament, the story of God reaches a climax as God enters our world in the person of Jesus Christ. Not just a prophet, but God in the flesh. And he suffers rejection, betrayal, injustice, nails through his hands and feet. God in the flesh, experiences a final breath. That is utterly amazing. And this theme is no clearer than in the crucifixion narrative just read to us in Mark 15. There in Mark 15, the circumstances and cry of the 
psalmist who wrote Psalm 22 become the circumstances and cry of God in the flesh in Jesus. Did you notice that when it was read out to us? How it reminded us of Psalm 22? I mean, think of it this way. The psalmist, hundreds of years before Jesus, had in Psalm 22 verse 7 said, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let, it, let the Lord rescue him. Exactly the same thing happens to Jesus in Mark 15, 31. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Just as the psalmist centuries earlier had had his clothes gambled away by his enemies, a very uh, common act of the um, victor over an enemy, so Jesus... At the foot of the cross has his garments gambled away in Mark 15, 24, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. And just as the psalmist centuries earlier had said in verse 16, metaphorically, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Of course, in the crucifixion narrative, they crucified him with non-metaphorical piercings. The gospel writers saw an uncanny connection between the suffering of the much-quoted Psalm 22 and the suffering of their Lord. And it's a connection, actually, Jesus prompted, made explicit, because Jesus cried out from the cross as one of his last words, the opening words of Psalm 22. Mark 15, 34 tells us at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words were not a cry of self-doubt on the part of Jesus. It's very important to understand this. Jesus isn't suddenly having second thoughts about who he is. Nor is he having second thoughts about his mission to die on behalf of the world for our forgiveness. No. Jesus has deliberately chosen words. He knows everyone in the audience had sung in their synagogue services for years. He knew he was quoting Psalm 22 from centuries earlier. In this moment, Jesus chose his words carefully as a deliberate act of identification with the ancient sufferer of Psalm 22, and therefore with anyone who has ever felt like crying out to God, my God, why? In that moment, God enters our pain. God knows what it is to be abandoned, to suffer. This God, and this God only, knows your pain, not just because he is all-knowing, but because he has experienced pain firsthand. It's a thought beautifully captured in a poem written after the devastation of World War I by Edward Shillito. Poems called Jesus of the Scars. Final verse reads, The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. 
They rode. Thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Compare this with Kobayashi Issa's poem. The Buddhist nobly straining to detach from grief. The Christian taking all griefs to the God of griefs, to the God who bears wounds. You know, the most painful effects of losing my dad actually weren't felt when I was a nine-year-old. My question as a nine-year-old was kind of the simple, why did this happen? My question as an 18-year-old was very different. Because I began to see all of my mates become mates with their dads. I think that was the trigger. I think watching Ben Shaw, for instance, who many of you know is a former assistant minister here, one of my best mates, to watch him become mates with his dad, actually that's when I felt the loss of a father more than anything. And I remember one afternoon in particular, we were on Ben's back balcony and his dad, Art, who was a beautiful, beautiful man, came out with three beers. It was by no means the first beer that Ben, ben had had. But this was a deliberate sort of father-son ritual. I, I could tell what Art was doing. Art was saying, you know, now we're men, we drink beer together. <laughs> and he was deliberately including me in the ritual. It was, it was lovely looking back on it. But I'm ashamed to say I responded really badly in a kind of you're not my father mode. And, you know, for weeks and months after that, I, I just felt just overwhelmed with a sense of sorrow, of all that I'd missed out on. And though I had become a Christian uh, two years earlier, about 16 years of age, for the next six months as an 18-year-old, I really stood on the edge of the Christian faith. I didn't pray. I didn't read my Bible. I stopped going to church. I wasn't sure I wanted to be involved anymore in this distant, passive God of my imagination. I thank God that about six months down, a friend took me aside and pointed out something that has utterly changed my perspective on suffering. She said, John, it's okay to feel what you're feeling, to doubt what you're doubting. It's fine. But please, please do it all thinking of the cross. Thinking of the God you're bringing your questions to. And in that moment, she was pointing out what I think is the most precious dimension of the biblical understanding of suffering. The God I brought my questions to was a God who knows everything I was going through. My question was, what does God know of my pain? Where is he when I'm hurting? The answer is, he is the God of the cross. 
He is the God who knows. And, and I can just testify to you that this helped immensely. This helped me through, brought me out the other side. And in the one or two other sadnesses I've had in life since then, I have found this immensely comforting. Some of you know that I almost watched Buff die. Uh, when we lost a pregnancy, we almost lost her. But to go to the God of comfort was beautiful. I remember just seven years ago having another wave of sorrow about my dad. It was weird. It was when I was an assistant minister here, right? And I think the trigger was Josh turning nine, which was the age I lost my dad at, right? And I began to think of all that he would lose if I died, which suddenly showed me all that I must have lost by not having a dad. But here's the thing. I, I went to the God of comfort, and I did not suffer a crisis of faith. Slightly raised fear of flying, yes, but not a crisis of faith, a kind of sweet melancholy, because I didn't have to detach from Dad in order to find consolation. I could come with all of my attachments and frustrations and sorrow and just go to the God who himself has wounds. Many of you have suffered way more than I could ever imagine. Go to the God who has wounds. As I close, I do still have intellectual questions about the problem of pain. And I'm sure you do as well. But what I've been trying to say in this series is that the Christian gospel offers three beautiful things. The least incomplete explanation for all those who have intellectual questions about pain. The most majestic promise of restoration for those who look at the world and long for it to be different. And the deepest source of consolation for those who really bear the scars of sorrow. In this great work of art we call the universe, we're not always going to be able to follow the hand of the artist. Some of his work will continue to baffle us. But what the Bible teaches and what the crucifixion narrative in particular tells us is that while we might not be able to always trace the artist's hand, we can always trust his heart, his motives, his character, his nearness, because on the cross, he showed us centrally what he is like. Go to this God. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray.